Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. And I'm Steve Bird. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Okay, welcome back, Steve. Uh, well, welcome back to you as well. Yes, you're, thank you're you. the one who just got back in town. I am. I just got back in town. I had a writing retreat. I'm trying to finish my second book. Things went very well. Also, usually we do a writer's retreat at a place where there is no internet. This time we had internet, which meant I was constantly checking because we have posted our first episode. There's a disconnect here between what people are listening to and what is posting. We have just posted the first episode a few days ago as we record this. I kept checking back to see how many people had downloaded it. I kept checking (laughs) to see for comments on our secretsofstory.com webpage. For every episode, you can go check out the show notes on secretsofstory.com. Click on Marvel Reread Club podcast on the sidebar, which I just remembered I haven't actually done yet. So by the time (laughs) you're hearing this, there will be a Marvel Reread podcast place to click in the sidebar. You will see all of our episodes, and then you can comment on each one. And please do. Yes, uh, absolutely. We, We look forward to hearing everything we've done wrong. And we heard some interesting stuff on the first one. And <laughs> we did. the biggest note was somebody said, you should mention the challengers of the unknown. So we have now officially <laughs> mentioned the challengers of the unknown. Maybe they will come up again. They might come up again when we discuss our third issues today. Yes, yes. So this, I think, is the last episode where we're going to be doing more than one month of comics. Marvel didn't publish any comics in June of 1962. They published two comics in July of 1962 and one comic in August of 1962. And then after that, they were off to the races because they published five comics in September. So starting next episode, we're going to do the five comics published in September. We're going to be doing one month per episode, every episode after that. But here we are covering three months in which they only published three comics. So we are going to be doing the momentous Fantastic Four number five. So good. Incredible Hulk number two. Hmm? Oh, I just said so good. So good. Fantastic Four number five. (laughs) The momentous Fantastic Four number five, Incredible Hulk number two, and Journey into Mystery 83, the first appearance of Thor. Before we get into that, I just want to point out that for anyone who is following along with the publication of these things at home, Matt and I had a difference of opinion between our different sources about whether Amazing Fantasy number 15 with the first appearance of Spider-Man was during this same month as Journey into Mystery 83. And we decided that Regardless of which one was actually correct, we were going to go with Matt's source because we didn't want to have to introduce Doctor Doom and Thor and Spider-Man all in the same episode. So, exactly. so if if you're at home like, hey, I just need to let you know that you know nothing about Marvel Comics if you don't know that Amazing Fantasy 15, yada, 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 there's some dispute between our two sources and we just went with the one that's more convenient for our format. Yes. This is Fantastic Four number five on the cover It says, meet Dr. Doom. We see a headshot of the destined-to-be-famous villain. He has the Fantastic Four, three of the Fantastic Four, in a chamber out of which he is draining the oxygen. And the invisible girl is bound in the next room and trying to figure out how she is going to save them. Yes. Well, let's go ahead and read it. Dr. Doom says, with the turn of the style, I shall destroy the four of you forever. Reed says, I've got to reach him. He's draining the air out of the room. I can't breathe. My my strength is ebbing. Ben says, air. I gotta have air. Johnny says, my flame is dying without oxygen. I'm helpless. Meanwhile, Sue is tied up and invisible in the other room. She says, I must get in to save them. But how? How? And Dr. Doom is all green for some reason. He is has green face, green hood, and green 
gauntlets. So then we're off to the races. Absolutely. First of all, my understanding is that this issue was inked by Joe Sinnott. It is. I mean, it's very clearly inked by Joe Sinnott. It's a beautiful issue. It looks like Kniff. You know, hmm. Kirby was very influenced by adventure comic strip artist Milton Kniff. Sinnott was even more influenced by Kniff, I think. And this really looks like a classic 1930s comic strip. This really looks like something out of Terry and the Pirates or Steve Canyon. It is just a gorgeous book. It really is. It, it looks beautiful. Uh, Joe Sinnott inked this. Also, for folks who don't know, that's monumentous because, uh, or I believe as Matt coined in a previous episode, monumentous, because <laughs> because Joe Sinnott, he's going to disappear again shortly here. He's going to be around for a few months. Then he's going to disappear for about four years. And then he's going to come back and he's going to start inking the Fantastic Four. And he will be the single most unifying element of the Fantastic Four from starting at about 1965 or 6 all the way up until the early 80s. He he will be inking and finishing the books so that he will give it a uniform look throughout that entire period of time. Long after Kirby has gone and other pencilers have come and gone. The big question is, what if Sinat had stayed on the book after issue five? Because Sinat Mm. inks this issue, and I think he inks like the first 10 pages of the next issue. And Mm. then he went off to do religious comics and disappeared from Marvel for four more years. I didn't know that's where he'd gone. I believe, and then disappeared from Marvel for four more years. And during that time, most of the inks on Fantastic Four for the next four years are going to be pretty awful. And then it's going to get worse and worse until Vince Coletta comes on the book, doing even worse inkings than Vince Coletta usually does. And it's going to be just ugly, ugly, ugly art, completely ruining Kirby's art. And then suddenly Sinon comes on the book in issue 44, and it is going to be gorgeous. But here we have a little glimpse of what could have been. We have this one issue of Synod before he disappears again for four years. Have I told you about when I showed my inking portfolio to Jim Shooter just a few years ago? No, I never heard this. But I was at a comic book convention and Jim Shooter was there. And I was like, hey, you know what? He's the guy who was the editor-in-chief at Marvel during the era in which I was collecting it would be a kick just to get a portfolio review from the guy. So I went over and he looked at it and he seemed very unimpressed. <laughs> and, you know, I know I'm, I'm a C-list inker. I, I know yeah. that. But, you know, he just looked <laughs> through it and he's like, all right, you know who you should look at for some improvements in your inking? He said Sinat, presumably. No. Coletta. <laughs> what? What? Are you serious? I am 100% serious. Whoa. He did hire Coletta for some work when he was editor-in-chief of Marvel. Seriously. My God. He, I thought you set me up for that one. I thought you were going to say Sinat. <laughs> he said Coletta. Coletta is the most despised inker in the history of comics. And Jim Shooter was telling you to ink like him? Uh, yes. <laughs> and assuming you had never heard of him, presumably. Oh, no, I doubt that. But here's the thing. When growing up in the 80s, I really liked Coletta's inks. The inks that I he did was doing, not. The, inks, the inks that he was doing in the 80s, I really enjoyed a lot of it. And I didn't find out until I was getting serious as breaking in as a comics artist that I accidentally mentioned that I liked Vince Coletta at one point. People kind of looked at me like, what? <laughs> and I had not seen his early 60s stuff at all. 
ever. And now that I'm going back and reading these things, I'm like, oh my god, no wonder they oh my god. Okay, by the time he reaches the 80s, I think it's okay. But okay, we'll we'll have plenty of time to discuss Fenskeletto later. Okay, so this issue is the first appearance of Doctor Doom. Will go on to be the Fantastic Four's greatest villain. Now later, of course, they kept finding ways to work Doctor Doom into the Fantastic Four's origin for both sets of movies they've done they worked him into the origin for the ultimate comics which was sort of the rough draft of the movies they worked him into the origin i certainly prefer him not being part of the origin i think it's much better to have him introduced afterwards but one of the things that surprised me in this issue is that it says right away on the very first page we see them the fantastic four and prisoners of dr doom and he's got a big book that says science and sorcery mm-hmm. and I had not realized that right from the beginning when we meet Dr. Doom, that the magical and scientific elements of the character are there. I had always thought that he was originally sort of more of a scientific character, and then they added all this magical stuff. But right from the beginning, it's science and sorcery. And demons. And demons, yes. He also has a book that's just labeled Demons, which is sort of locked shut. So it's a dangerous (laughs) book of demons. All right, so then we have Johnny Storm is reading Hulk number one. So yes. Johnny Storm is reading a Hulk comic the first time we've established that, well, no, I guess that's not true. I was going to say it's the first time we've established that, that Marvel Comics are published in this world. But no, they, uh, Marvel Comics played a big part in the plot in issue two. It's the first time we've seen that superhero comics are published in this world, which is already getting a little like... Um, <laughs> like it, it also played a big part in the plot of issue four. Oh, you're right. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm not, I'm not being clear on this. That's right. Marvel Comics have already played a big part in the plots of issue two and four, because in the second issue, they show the Scrolls Monster comics. And in the fourth issue, Johnny runs across old Submariner comics. So, And now Johnny is reading the Hulk number one, and Johnny comments like, uh, isn't the Hulk kind of derivative of the thing? So they're, uh, they're criticizing themselves here. Then yes. the whole building they're in is thrown under a net. Dr. Doom has flown over. Let, 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 let me just point out two things here. One is that the this is clearly visually the Baxter building, but they are now referring to it as the tower. Yes, uh, they have which, not arrived at the word Baxter yet. And when Johnny and Ben are fighting over the comic book, Johnny actually sets it aflame. He burns up a copy of Incredible Hulk number one, which I'm sure will make all comics collectors very, very sad. Yes, Johnny's kids would be very unhappy to find out their father burned a copy of uh, Hulk number one. So then the Doctor Doom shows up, and Doctor Doom has painted a little shark face on the front of his helicopter. i totally forgotten that the <laughs> helicopter is decorated like a shark. Yes, I just love the idea of Doctor Doom taking the time to paint a shark onto his helicopter, something that he will never do again. And generally not a shark-themed villain, I think, no. to a certain extent. But, but nevertheless, he has painted an adorable little shark eyes and, and tooth mouth on his copter. Reed recognizes him, says, that's my old college roommate. Another thing I thought would only be established later. That- yeah, I'd forgotten that that was established right off. I once again thought that was part of the, oh, let's go ahead and try to shoehorn him into to the history of this stuff. But no, no, he's uh, right here at the beginning. And he was already involved in both science and sorcery in his college dorm room, which has got to make you the most annoying college roommate ever. <laughs> and builds a pig machine, blows himself up, has a scarred face, disappears into the very first Marvel mention of Tibet. Disappears yes. into the wilds of Tibet. Of course, in the Marvel movies, they are not allowed to mention Tibet because they are trying to get Marvel movies released in China. Tibet is mentioned here in the comics. 
So then Dr. Doom puts the whole building in a net, demands that Sue be his hostage. This is our first time of Sue being taken hostage. She mm-hmm. agrees to it. She very heroically says, yes, I will agree to be your hostage if it will help save the others. Once he has her, he demands the others get in his helicopter. The helicopter then flies off. Now, it's unclear whether the helicopter flies all the way to Europe because they fly to a castle. And it's unclear if it's flying all the way to a European castle in Europe or it is later established that he has a castle in upstate New York. So this is clearly his castle in upstate New York. But at the time, we don't know that in this mm-hmm. issue. And it just seems odd that somehow they make it to a castle. Did, didn't did John Byrne supposedly buy himself a castle in upstate New York at one point when he was uh, at the height of the I never Spain? heard that. John yeah. Byrne, who later takes over as writer and artist of this of this comic. Also, he has not yet taken over Latveria and become their dictator yet. Uh, that will be oh, yeah. set up. No. No, no, no. That 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 happens in later issues. Oh, okay. At least that's my memory. We'll see if I'm wrong later. People might be already firing up their keyboards to let me know where I'm wrong. So then Dr. Doom has them all stand on a yellow square conspicuously, and he is sitting a little throne, and he has Sue tied up. And he is, of course, keeping them under control in the way Dr. Doom does with his pet tiger. <laughs> Once again, so odd. This like so never odd, comes not- up. Not generally a tiger-themed villain, and indeed, in this entire issue, the tiger only appears in this one panel, but it is shown to be the source of his intimidation. He says, you are wise to restrain yourselves, fast though you may be. My little pet here is faster. So they're terrified of his tiger, which never appears again, ever in the history of Doctor Doom that I know of. He then reveals his absolutely insane plan, which is he wants them to go back in time and steal Blackbeard's treasure chest. Now, he unfortunately specifically says treasure chest, which he will come to regret, And he, but that he has invented a time machine. That's his plan. So generally speaking, I think with Dr. Doom, what Dr. Doom's plan is, is always a little vague. Like, <laughs> he definitely has it out for the Fantastic Four, but then whenever he has to have a plan other than just kill the Fantastic Four... It's always something completely insane and bizarre and so roundabout. It never has anything directly to do with taking over the world. (laughs) He's inscrutable. So then it turns out they are standing on the time machine. They go back in time. At this point, Senat's inking is just gorgeous. And this really looks like, it looks like an old issue of, oh, what was that? Classics Illustrated. Yes, this looks like an old issue of Classics Illustrated. And so then they go back in time. Luckily, some people are fighting over a big collection of clothes and presumably wigs and fake beards. And they are able to interrupt this argument. They steal some clothes, which also comes with a nice eye patch and fake beard for Ben. They then instantly, like everyone back in Pirate Times who has no idea what they're doing, they instantly get knocked out. They get drugged and knocked out in Shanghai to become a pirate crew. I will point out that teenage Johnny drinks a mug of grog that ends up knocking him out. So we have underage drinking. Don't drink, kids. This is what will happen to you every time you'll end up on a pirate crew. Not in a good way. Not in a good way. So then they try to escape on the pirate ship. Ben quickly takes control of the pirate ship. And they're all like, oh, you are now our mighty leader, Blackbeard. And he realizes, like, wait just a second, I am Blackbeard. And they get in a big pirate fight. They steal a treasure chest. It turns out they realize, oh, this must be Blackbeard's treasure, the one we just stole. At this point, Reed has a very clever idea. He's like, wait just a second, Doom just asked us to bring Blackbeard's treasure chest. This is probably a very valuable treasure to him. Let's dump it out and put in chains in the chest instead. 
Unfortunately, at this point, Ben has decided he wants to stay Blackbeard. He sees no reason to return to the present. And you would think he would then go like, sorry, guys, I'm not going back with you. But no, he's not going to let them go back either. He says, and I'll make sure you two don't try to take me back. Tie him up, men, fast. Don't be scared of the torch. He's still soaking wet. He can't flame on you. So, I mean, eventually he's going to have to kill them, right? What he, what he says here is that he's putting them in a lifeboat, and then he's going to try to disappear into the mist. Back in the 1700s, when a ship passed over the horizon, you had no idea where it was or where it was going. You knew its general direction. You knew kind of where the winds were blowing, but it really could just sort of disappear. It was going to, you know, show yep. up somewhere at some point. But I think that was the thought, was just to go ahead and keep them there until he was over the horizon and they couldn't find him. Okay, yeah. He says, now put him over the side in a lifeboat. By the time they get free, we'll have lost ourselves in the fog. They'll never find us again. Right. Okay, so I, it's not as bad as I originally thought. But <laughs> nevertheless, this is definitely like the apotheosis, I think, of Ben turning against the team. This is like the furthest against, well, that's not true. Eventually, he'll go on rampages amok and run amok in various ways. Also, I think this is probably the most justifiable moment of all <laughs> of that here. I mean, honestly, he's got a really good point. You know, he is yeah, held he's held in highest. Good Exactly. He's held in high esteem. They all love him. They take orders from him. He's a leader of men. It's like, oh, or do I go back to the time when I'm just nothing but an orange freak? You know, yeah, yeah no, by all means, stay behind. But then because there's a thousand plot points in this issue, a typhoon comes, it destroys the boat. Ben now regrets everything. He feels terrible. Luckily, the chest full of chains is washed ashore. Dr. Doom brings him back to the present. Dr. Doom, unfortunately, then does think to open the chest, realizes it is chains. Uh, they then try to beat him up. And then this is another thing I thought that wouldn't happen for many, many issues. Uh, ben crushes Dr. Doom, and it turns out to be a Doombot, a yes. robot version of Dr. Doom, which is another big part of Dr. Doom mythos that I assumed was introduced later. Same here. I'd completely forgotten that that was in this issue. Uh, and on this page, if I'm not mistaken, this might very well be the very first Marvel Comics footnote at the bottom of the page. Um, yes, they say, which, what if Submariner should ever find them? And they go, Submariner, see, Fantastic Four issue four from May. And that becomes a recurring theme in the Marvel Universe for the next decades. Uh, yes. Is that they're always footnoting things that tell you what issue this past thing happened in, which really just increased the mythology of all of these books being in part of a interconnected universe. Now, the lamest thing about this issue is that Sue doesn't get to go along in the adventure, I guess, because they figured that she would not be able to pass for a pirate. But she then turns pretty badass here. She is tied oh, yeah. up. Her hands are tied behind her. But she still manages to muck with Doom's equipment, blow him up. And he looks pretty thoroughly blown up here. He, oh, he yeah. takes a hit. And then she <laughs> runs out. She frees the rest of the team while tied up, which is yes. pretty impressive. Then they... Escape from the tower. Doom has a crocodile-filled moat, which Johnny then says, oh, I know how to get us across the crocodile-filled moat. Here's something I've been wanting to try for months. By giving my flame the intensity of atomic heat, I can actually boil a section of the water away and fuse the ground, turning it into a glass-like substance. I think this is the only time Johnny ever burns but, water to become glass. This makes no sense. It makes absolutely... <laughs> this is just like, I just... Um, this didn't happen. I'm just moving on to the next thing. That's just so ridiculous. But, uh, so but then, I mean, Dr. on the other Doom hand, is, that's 
on the other hand, that's part of that's part of uh, Silver Age comics, though. You know, yes. there's like a lot of this just, oh, here's something just because it's visually interesting. I'll just throw this out there. And then, you know, Stan's got to be like, OK, how do I explain this? So then Dr. Doom flies away. Johnny tries to stop him. He doesn't. So then they decide they just have to walk home from wherever they are, Europe, or we will later find out upstate New York. And Dr. Doom gets away. So this is not like the early issues where it's like, this menace is gone forever. No, he is going to come back. I think he comes back the very next issue, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. And I I think they actually do burn down the castle and Doom escapes with a rocket pack. Yes. Which now that is something that will not become a regular thing. Sometimes he'll have a rocket pack. Maybe. No, this is not the last we'll see of Doom's rocket pack, but he doesn't always have them. (laughs) Right. It's it's not a regular part of his repertoire. Okay. Was there anything else about this issue we wanted to cover? This is a fantastic issue. This phrase is usually used in a negative way, but in this case, I mean it in a completely positive way. This is 10 pounds of stuff in a five pound bag. Um, (laughs) There is so much that happens in this issue. It is insanely packed. In later comics, this would have been at least a six-issue storyline. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole idea of the Ultimate comics they eventually did, Ultimate Fantastic Four, is we're going to take each issue that Stan injected and unpack each one into six issues, into a six-issue storyline in order to... Only the good ones, not not the Miracle Man. (laughs) Not Miracle Man. (laughs) And... Oh, yeah, they literally had a whole project where they would just unpack Stan and Jack comics into six issues apiece. And who, boy, this one could take it. Well, we've got just the invention of time travel just is just happens. Just boom, (laughs) you know, like introducing that whole element to the Marvel Universe happens in just very quickly. Everything happens quickly. Yeah. So they introduce sorcery. They introduce time travel, they introduce Dr. Doom, they introduce, you know, Dr. Doom's connection with Reed Richards. I guess they introduced a shark copter, which I didn't realize. uh... (laughs) The most important (laughs) element of Marvel history, Dr. Doom's shark helicopter. You know, that explains the Thanos copter. (laughs) Many many years later, they did a a non-canonical Thanos comic in which he had a Thanos copter, which is also something you would not associate with Thanos. And uh, has a panel that has given many people many a chuckle on the internet ever since. But I think that the Shark's Doom copter also belongs up there. It really, really does. Okay, so that was Fantastic Four number five. Oh, one last thing to mention. Did you notice who wrote the first letter? Did you have the letter page on your version? So I'm on I'm on Marvel Unlimited, and they sometimes have the letter pages scanned in, and they sometimes don't. In this issue, they did not. So they did not. Who, who wrote the first letter? The first letter was from Roy Thomas. <laughs> so tell us who Roy Thomas is. And just appeared, Stanley finally started, hired somebody to take over writing a lot of these comics, and it would be Roy Thomas who would eventually take over the writing of this very comic a hundred issues later. The very first letter is, Dear Editor, Fantastic Four number three was excellent. The feud angle made it all the better, though, particularly the ending. The continuity in Fantastic Four is all that could possibly be asked. Of course, Roy, always a big fan of continuity. I've just subscribed to Fantastic Four for two years. I hope it lasts much longer than that. Indeed, it will last long enough for you to take over as writer, Roy. (laughs) Roy Thomas, Sullivan, Missouri. And they say, so do we, Roy, so do we. Of course, the letters columns we're going to be most looking forward to are the early Fantastic Four comics in which George R.R. Martin gets letters published. (laughs) We'll be running into those fairly soon. But one thing you're going to see a lot in Marvel Comics in the 60s and 70s, somebody's name shows up in the letters column, and then they get hired to be a writer not that long after. Yes, and, and I will point out that Roy Thomas not only went on to take over as a writer on this book and on many of the books that Lee is currently writing, he will also, once 
Lee becomes promoted to be publisher of Marvel Comics, Roy takes over job the job as editor. So he yep. will really take on all of Stan Lee's responsibilities eventually. And here he yes. was just writing a letter in Fantastic Four number three. Sorry, about Fantastic Four number three in Fantastic Four number five. Yes, it is exciting. Okay, I think that is it for Fantastic Four number five. It's a fantastic comic. It is wonderful. We will not be spending this on every issue of Fantastic Four, but we've had so many great momentous issues to start us off. Okay, let's yes. go ahead and get on to Hulk number two. We will let's get through Hulk it. number two faster. Hulk number two is the first really bad issue I think we've discussed. <laughs> As I've stated, my thesis is that most Silver Age Marvel second issues were pretty bad. There are exceptions. Right. Fantastic Four number two, biggest exception. Incredible Hulk number two, not an exception. Not an exception. So this is the Incredible Hulk, the terror of the Toadmen. We're on an alien ship. Some Toadmen are watching a screen. On the screen, someone is saying, General, it's them, the Toadmen. They're attacking. One of the Toadmen says, it is too late for the humans to stop us now. Nothing can stop us. But then the Hulk is coming through the door saying nothing except the Hulk. And this cover, as well as the issue, inked by whom? Did you look up who the anchor is? <laughs> Why would I bother to look it up? <laughs> It's so visually obvious. It's Steve Ditko, who... Steve uh, Ditko. This is his first appearance in the superhero comics. By the way, when you were doing all the introductions at the beginning about what comics were published, what months, you did not specify that these, those were all the superhero comics that Marvel had been published. Oh, right. Of course. Point. This is the first that we've seen Steve Ditko show his head in the superhero comics. Steve Ditko will go on to be penciler and inker of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, and of course, co-potter and then solo potter of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Now, this is him inking Kirby. So you like his inking of Kirby? I do, especially on Hulk. I think it really adds a lot of atmosphere to this, which is still, you know, at least 50% a monster book. And I, I think that that really works in this case. See, I don't like it. I really? think he is not a good Kirby inker. You know, Steve Ditko is an absolutely fantastic inker of Steve Ditko, but it's very rare for him to ink anybody else. And certainly only Ditko inked by anybody other than Ditko is just not good comics. Like Ditko is only a really great artist when he inks himself, and he is a fantastic artist when he inks himself. But I don't think he's a great inker of other people. And there's a lot of uh, slipshod work in this issue. When he's giving it his all on the cover and in some panels, it creates an interesting texture. You can definitely see it. It's combining Dicko and Kirby, who are the two greatest comic book artists of the 1960s, two of the greatest artists, period, of the 1960s. It's interesting to see them combined, but I don't necessarily think it's two great tastes that taste great together. I actually am not generally a big fan of Steve Ditko's art for art's sake. I am fascinated by Ditko. I am utterly fascinated by Ditko. If it just comes to what kind of art I like to look at, generally it's not Ditko's. Um, oh, I and absolutely love, I think I like Kirby and Ditko more than you do. I uh, I don't probably. I don't like Kirby and Dicko together as much as you do, but I like I like Kirby with a good inker and Dicko inking himself more than you do. I literally can read Dicko comics all day long for the rest of my life, and I'd be a happy man. Here's the weird thing: the Hulk first appears in a swamp. Yes, as if he is a. There's a whole rich history of swamp creature comics, and it's as if they are trying to adopt that tradition here, but, uh, but not generally a swamp creature from this point on in. Also, he doesn't exist in a swamp area. He's in the southwestern <laughs> desert. He's in, like, New Mexico or something like that. <laughs> the swamps of New Mexico. Yes. Okay, so the first thing to notice here is that the Hulk is green now. He was gray in the first issue, and he is also now wearing purple pants. 
And of course, green and purple are associated with villains in comics. Superman wears primary colors, but Lex Luthor wears green and purple. The Joker wears green and purple. And the Hulk is wearing green and purple. He's always pulling pants off of clotheslines after he is transformed. And he always manages to find purple pants, which is <laughs> not easy to do. I don't know about your history with stealing pants from people and hoping that they're purple. But for in my <laughs> own personal history, doesn't work out very well. I've heard a number of people point out that it's because of the gamma radiation that he gives off passively that it turns <laughs> the pants purple. Oh, okay. That explains it. So <laughs> this is a fairly bad issue. It's got very generic alien villains. This is not the only comic we'll be reading today in which there are generic alien villains. I know, um, right? It's interesting that the Hulk is seems sort of less villainous than the Thing at this point. We just saw the Thing acting really villainous. And the Hulk is really certainly fighting everybody he runs into, but he's not really causing that much damage. I have a question for you. Since I'm looking at this on Marvel Unlimited, where they have done computer coloring based on the original coloring, and usually they're pretty accurate to what the original coloring is. Even if there's a coloring mistake in the originals, they will try to duplicate that mistake here in these. But that being said, on page four in the flashback where we see the Hulk's first appearance, he is colored more gray in that panel here. He's green in the other panels, but he's gray in that flashback panel on page four. What does it look like on yours? He's yellow. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Every person in that panel is colored yellow because it's like a sepia tone flashback. Interesting. Well, they did not stick with that. Uh, like they I said, they generally tend to stick with the original color scheme, but I guess not always. Now, one other thing that I do want to mention while we're stopped here for a second is that you were talking about how much is the Hulk a good guy and a bad guy in this. One thing that the Comics Code Authority, which was the self-censorship board that comics had set up in the 50s, one of their rules was that you could not portray police or the American military in a bad light in any way whatsoever. And, <laughs> Which is just right. that, I mean, like, yes. this whole comic <laughs> just flies in the face of that. Right. But I think, I think the way that they were able to kind of get around to that is that, well, is the Hulk the bad guy? Yeah. Right. But the thing is, it's like they kind of play with that back and forth at first, but then after a while, they're sort of off to the races and like the bad guy is always the U.S. Army. And it's like the Comics Code Authority somehow never was like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway, so. Go on with what you were saying. I feel like everybody who reads comics for several decades eventually has a moment where they're like, all right, I'm no longer going to keep up with comics because there was a line that was crossed where it's like, these are no longer my comics. These are no mm -hmm. longer comics that I support. These are no longer comics. You know, there has been a plot development that I consider to be apocryphal. And for me, that moment with Marvel Comics, where all Marvel Comics passed over into being apocryphal, was the moment in the early aughts when they suddenly revealed in what I guess they did not consider to be a retcon, but I certainly consider to be a retcon, that the Hulk had been killing people all along, that the Hulk had been killing hundreds of innocent people in all of these issues. Now, of course, I've read all these issues of Hulk, and the Hulk is clearly not killing innocent people that anybody mentions, but they, they suddenly release a death toll for the Hulk right before they launch him off into another planet for Planet Hulk. 
And I was like, that sucks, man. Because like the whole point of these comics, as far as I'm concerned, is that he is misunderstood and he's not really a menace and that they falsely perceive him to be a menace. And if you then reveal he's been killing hundreds of people all these years, well, then the most heroic thing he could do is just commit suicide. Like, you know, he really, it turns out General Thunderbolt Ross was right all this time and Rick Jones was wrong and the Hulk should have been locked up in a cell a long time ago. And I really did not like that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do want to point out that the Toadman spaceship looks kind of like a toad on page four. <laughs> so I got to say, you know, it didn't really make sense for Doom to have a helicopter that looked like a shark, but it does make sense for them to have a beautifully designed rocket ship designed by Kirby that looks like a toad. Quickly summing up, the Toadman come to Earth. They say our grapplers have focused on the most brilliant scientific brain on Earth. According to our command, let us land and seize him. So then they come to Earth. They decide to kidnap Bruce Banner. So, so, so we've now determined that Bruce Banner is a more brilliant scientific mind than Reed Richards. According to the equipment of the Toad Man, <laughs> yes. So then I've said before what I always like about the Hulk is that his status quo is always changing. We get a major new element of his status quo today that he has an underwater cave where he will seal himself up when he is the Hulk to keep himself from getting out. Then they get kidnapped by the Toad Man and say, we have captured the greatest mind on Earth as we planned. Now blast off. So... These are the first villains with magnetic powers, and this is my biggest problem with the Toad Man, is yes. that one does not generally associate toads with magnetism. Like, oh, they're Toad oh, that, Men. That's your problem. <laughs> they're Toad Men, <laughs> so they have <laughs> magnet powers. Like, how does that have to do with toads? See, Why would see, toads have magnet powers? Okay, that's that's like third or fourth down the list for me. First of all, they don't really look like toads. Their ship looks more like a toad than they do. Second yes. of all, magnetism is... Uh, magnetism is basically auditioning for the role that transistors would eventually play here. <laughs> Very much. And that it's just doing all this stuff that it's like, that's not what magnetism is. What are you talking about? Okay, so they kidnap Bruce Banner, they take off, and then the army shoots down the ship. The ship then crashes, and they know the Hulk was on the ship. The ship crashes, and now it's like, now Bruce Banner's on the ship in a torn up outfit with torn up purple pants. And one of the many times that Thunderbolt Ross does not then figure out that Banner is the Hulk. But he does, of course, accuse Banner of treason. He puts him in a cell. Of course, Banner gets out when he becomes the Hulk at sundown. He, of course, kidnaps Betty briefly, as he always does. But then they all get knocked out by an earthquake. He becomes Banner again. He realizes his gamma ray gun can expel the Toadman from Earth. He expels the Toadman from Earth with his gamma ray gun. Betty says to her father, I told you you could trust Bruce, Dad. Thunderbolt Ross says, Hurumph. Even though he managed to clear himself this time, I'm still suspicious of him. I still feel there's some connection between him and that ding-blasted Hulk. For all we know, he and the Hulk are together right now, planning new devilment. And she just says, oh, Dad. And then we see the Hulk is locked up in his cave. So this issue is not Fantastic Four number five. No, no. But it's, it's, there are things I like about it. There are some fantastic panels. The splash sequence on page 20 at the beginning of part five, where the Hulk is covered in like 20 army men trying to take him down, and then he just shrugs them all off and they go flying yeah, away. Yeah, that's, that's a nice page. You were asking about me liking Ditko inking Kirby here. And what I like about it is that the Hulk looks kind of like Boris Karloff. Yeah. In here, in in a a way that I I, I think really works. I really like that. Also on page 17, there's a fantastic sequence at the bottom where the Hulk rips up a a railroad tie, sticks it into the barrel of an artillery field piece and hoists it over his head, making everyone fly about with it. So I mean, there there is some really nice stuff in here. But yes, generic alien villains that don't make much sense and really are easily forgettable. 
Well, and Tico, I should say, will eventually take over this book. Tico is legendary for his runs on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, but people always forget that he was he did Hulk for just about six months and did a great job, and he's a great artist. Well, but, he, also, uh, he also did issue number six of the original series, didn't he? Did he? I yes, think so. I think you're right. Yeah. Let's, we'll find out when we get there. Yeah, okay. he did that, and then he later took over the character when he was in Tales, Tales to Astonish. Astonish. Uh, yeah. yeah, so he he takes over there for a while. And for a very momentous uh, storyline, if I, if I recall correctly, that, as I've said before, is the first storyline where he starts acting like the Hulk we know today. He would then revert to some other things later, but eventually we would sort of find out that that was his first stint as the Hulk that we would all know and love for the next decades. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to Journey into Mystery 83. This is the first soft launch that we've gotten to. They did hard launches of Fantastic Four and Hulk. They were like, even though we're into this restrictive deal where we cannot publish too many extra comics, we're going to go ahead and commit to the bit. We're going to launch Fantastic Four number one with full-length comics about the Fantastic Four every month. We're going to launch Hulk number one with full-length comics about the Hulk every month. Now they're trying to expand their heroic universe. And they're like, well, let's do a soft launch. So Journey into Mystery was up to issue 83. They were mainly doing reprints of earlier Marvel monster books from back before they had had to fire everybody back in 1957. And then they decided to have just one of the three stories in the issue introduce this new character of Thor. This is just a 13-page story, one of many stories in this issue. And this sort of soft launch of Thor, what were you saying? Uh, yes, I want to point out that on the cover, they refer to him as the most exciting superhero of all time. This is the first character that they first introduce with, hey, look, this is a superhero. Everyone else kind of snuck in one way or another. You know, the Fantastic Four seemed more like a monster comic. The Hulk definitely was a monster comic. Ant-Man has been surreptitiously introduced, although we do not realize that yet. And that started out as a monster comic. This is the first time they introduce a character and say, hey, look at this new superhero. Yeah, I guess you could say MN was an even softer lunch, was the softest possible lunch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this time they say, you know, he'll be back in future issues. Unlike with Ant-Man, they say right away, this is Thor, he'll be back in future issues. But it's very soft lunch. So we should talk about... Oh, and, and uh, who, who inked this? I think I know. But what, what, is your, <laughs> what does your information say about who inked this? It's Senna. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay, yeah. good. So, well, yeah, let's go and talk about this because Senna will become involved in this. I feel like there's always this huge debate. There's a debate about how much with each issue Stanley wrote it, or we should give Jack Kirby credit for writing it. But then there's also the debate about who created these characters and whether or not eventually Jack Kirby would claim in interviews and in lawsuits that he had dreamed up all these characters completely by himself and started doing these books. And then Stanley just came along and wrote scripts for them and then claimed lying to have created these characters. Stanley claimed that, no, he came up with these characters by himself and then hired Kirby to draw them. So you have this huge debate that he said, he said, nobody knows who to believe. Now, one of the cases in Jack's favor that people who support Jack always point out is that Jack had done a comic for DC in the 50s, had done just a one-off story for DC in the 50s, in which he basically said, hey, let's take Thor from Norse mythology and turn him into a superhero. So they're like, well, this proves that Jack just had these ideas sitting around, and then Stanley sort of glommed onto them, because Jack had already done an issue of Thor as a superhero. Well, the fascinating thing to me about reading this issue and the entire first year of Thor comics is that 
Jack is much less dedicated to this comic than he is to the other comics. If this is the one that is more Jack's baby, and eventually Jack will become more dedicated to Thor than to any other series. By the time we get to 1970, Jack is only still doing two bucks. He's only still doing Fantastic Four and Thor. They tie for his two longest runs. And I guess Fantastic Four is longer because it starts a little earlier. Jack is really pouring himself in both to Thor and to the backup feature, which runs for most of that time, Tales of Asgard. But at the time, it's very shocking when rereading these Marvel comics to see that Kirby abandons Thor pretty quickly. By the time you get a couple more issues in, Kirby is not drawing Thor anymore. And then he disappears from the comic for several months and then comes back and then sort of comes back with a vengeance and finally discovers how much he loves Thor. But even in this first issue, we looked at Fantastic Four number five, which was inked by Joe Sinnott during his brief time here at Marvel Comics before he would disappear for another four years. And he inked that issue. He also inked this issue. But frankly, it seems to me like Kirby is just doing rough layouts here because this issue looks more like a comic drawn by Joe Sinnott then it looks like a comic drawn by Jack Kirby. You could say the same thing about that issue of the Hulk, where it looks almost more like an issue drawn by Steve Ditko than by Jack Kirby. See, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. I would say that that Kirby was shining through the Ditko there more than Kirby is shining through the Sinnot here. If you look at Thor on page six, Thor's face is pure Sinnot. There is no Kirby in Thor's face on page number six, implying that Kirby was doing pretty rough layouts. Thor's musculature is entirely Sinnot. It's not at all Kirby musculature. I would say that just generally speaking, this comic looks more like a Sinnot comic than a Kirby comic. I would say that Kirby is not really committing to the bid here. Let's also just acknowledge the fact that this is 1962. Both Stan and Jack were sons of Jewish immigrants in America who had both fought the Nazis in World War II. And well, I guess Jack had physically fought the Nazis in World War II. Stan was doing work on the home front or something like that. But yeah. one way or the other, this is Germanic heroic mythology. The Nazis were trying to rope some of this heroic mythology into a lot of their own mythology that they were creating. And I just find it fascinating that these two guys end up glomming on to, hey, let's do a comic book where the superhero is this Norse god of war, basically. <laughs> it's like, it is pretty strange. But, yeah, yeah. but Jack, Jack somehow makes a personal connection with these Germanic legends, and he will go absolutely crazy on this book. He will, he will pour so much of his imagination into this book, I would say, more than any other book in the late 60s by the time he really gets going on this book. Okay, so the other thing we have to talk about here is that there's debate about to what degree Stan plotted this issue, but there's another factor here, and that is that we can't be sure Stan plotted this issue, but we do know Stan did not script this issue. That's a good point. On the book, it just says Stanley and Jack Kirby. If you go back and check all the official sources, they have still not been rewritten to say that Jack deserves co-writer credit, Jack deserves co-plotting credit. They always just list Jack as penciler, but they do all for this book list the scripter as Larry Lieber who was Stan's brother. Stanley, his real name was Stanley Lieber, and he changed his name from Stanley Lieber to Stan Lee. His brother did not change his name, so his brother wrote comics as Larry Lieber. He also drew some comics in these early days. Yes, he wrote Andrew Monster Comics for Marvel. He wasn't a bad writer, he wasn't a bad penciler, but just for this first year of Marvel, Larry Lieber scripted a lot of the comics, uncredited, and is credited now. So when you see the Thor movies or the Loki TV show, it says at the end, Thor created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. 
or the Loki TV show, it says Loki created by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. And it's the same way with Iron Man because Larry Lieber also scripted the first issue of Iron Man. So that comic is credited to Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Don Heck. We're going to get more into Larry Lieber, I think, in future episodes, but we should just go ahead and mention that now, that this comic is scripted, not by Stan Lee, it is scripted uncredited by Larry Lieber. Yep. Okay, so in this first issue, we meet, on the first page, Donald Blake, a lame American physician, an American physician with a limp who is vacationing in Norway. I thought you just meant that he was, like, not at all cool. No, he's totally lame, dude. I gotta say, before we jump in, it is never clear in these early issues whether Donald Blake is an actual real person who turns into Thor, or whether he is just the human guise of Thor. And this would not be made clear until the comics from the 70s when it's probably made clear that no, there is no Don Blake. Like Don Blake is just Thor who has forgotten he's Thor. Right. But, but for the first like, for about the first year here, including in this issue, it really seems like Don Blake was just the boy who happened to pull the sword from the stone. Yeah, well, I guess even in that case, he actually was King Arthur. But still, he just seems like, oh, he found the secret totem. So he now gets the power of Thor, but seems to still be Donald Blake. In the well, body he, of what Thor. he seems like is he seems like Billy Batson, who yes. would say Shazam and would become Captain Marvel. Okay, and Billy right. Batson and Captain Marvel were seen as separate characters. And at first, Thor and Donald Blake are seen as separate characters. Now, of course, eventually they realize, okay, let's just give up. Already in this issue, we've got this sort of idea that like Thor is supposed to be a superhero, but Thor never really works as a superhero comic. They never really know what to do with Thor. Thor really doesn't have much of a mission on Earth. It will take many years before they eventually realize, okay, Thor is basically not a superhero. He is an adventurer, and he is going to be fighting Toad invader. Here I am saying Toad's <laughs> last issue. Right. He is going to be fighting troll invasions of Asgard, and that is going to be the sort of thing he does in this book, and he's not going to be fighting supervillains on Earth. But for five years, they have him on Earth. They have him with his human Earth girlfriend, Jane Foster. They have him fighting gangsters and fighting aliens and fighting the commies and fighting all sorts of people. And then finally, after five years, they sort of give up. They write Jane Foster out of the book. They give him an Asgardian girlfriend. They acknowledge that most of the tales will be taking place in Asgard from that point on. But already in this first issue, they sort of don't know what to do with Thor because even before he finds the thing, Aliens Land... Now, once again, as with Hulk number two, which we just read, the aliens, how are they described? They're described as the stone men from Saturn. and They look like Easter Island heads on top of Ben Grimm bodies. Yes. So they look like Easter Island heads, which is like, okay, that's a nice visual. That's cool looking. And then eventually, of course, one of these aliens would come back in the Planet Hulk storyline, and we would get to see a lot more oh, of these aliens. right. And then he shows up in the movie. He's the one who's actually voiced by Taika Waititi. Oh, you're right. Yes. I had forgotten. I not realized that the Taika Waititi character is supposed to be one of these aliens. I had not realized that either until you just said that. But as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, that's who that was. You're right. But they don't know what to do. And so these aliens, they're stone men from Saturn. And what do they do? They use an illusion casting device to make it look like they're giant dragons. So when you think of <laughs> Easter Island heads, Saturn, and dragons... Those three things don't go together. <laughs> like, you know, and, like, and no, no, nor do they go with Thor. No, and certainly <laughs> none of those three things go with Thor. <laughs> so there is no theme to these villains at all. Don Blake sees aliens attacking, goes into a cave. Now, it's a little weird that a lame man, a man who can't walk very well, happens to find a cane, but that works out well for him. He finds a cane, then he taps the cane against the wall. It becomes 
the hammer of Thor. Now they are already establishing this thing that only occasionally the hammer will have written on it. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Of course, they'll eventually get lots of stories out of worthiness one way or another. Yes. And other people being worthy. Who else is worthy to hold the hammer? This has come up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. And when is Thor not worthy? That's and the when other is Thor thing. not worthy to hold the hammer? That will come up a lot. And you have some really beautiful pages where Thor learns how the hammer works, which I think will stand them in good stead. And, and, um, and, and which also implies that he does not become a Thor, that he is Don Blake in Thor's body, because if he then was suddenly like, oh, I am now Thor, I would know how Thor's hammer works. <laughs> yes, and so he fights the stone men from Saturn. They drop a cage on him, they attack him with a giant robot. I think the robot is just there so that we can see Thor smash something without actually smashing any living person. They say he has vanquished the Mechano monster. The human is too mighty, too skilled in the art of battle. And we know not how many more there are like him on Earth. So then they're like, everybody on the planet may be like Thor. They then leave the planet never to return. I don't think they attack a lot again. The army then comes up trying to find Thor. But why? What could have driven them off? I don't know. There's no one in sight, except for that lame passerby with a gnarled old cane. Well, it's a cinch. (laughs) That skinny gent is an Earth's secret weapon. So then we end with an editor's note in which it says, Thor the Mighty, Thor spelled with two R's. Yes. Now, we've just read a whole issue in which Thor was spelled with one R, the whole issue. But at the end, it says Thor with two R's, the mighty, the greatest newest superhero of all time, will appear regularly in Journey into Mystery. Reserve next month's issue at your news dealers now. It's sure to be a sellout. So, and that's the end of the issue. A couple things that I want to mention about this issue. First of all, when he's going through and figuring out how the hammer works, they go through some really fiddly stuff about stamping his hammer on the ground a certain number of times to get a certain effect it's like a click versus a double click on your computer (laughs) mouse or something so a single click uh turns him back and forth into being thor or donald blake a double click causes rain or snow and then what does the triple triple stamp do oh that makes the rain or snow go away and this will not stick around long uh <laughs> no i I, th- I think it will stick around for like the first year maybe but they'll, they'll make some references to it here and there but uh, <laughs> one, no. of, one of my favorite moments in any movie is in the james bond movie golden eye when they've got a little pen where if you click it twice it arms the bomb in the pen and if you click it three times it disarms it and then the villain starts nervously clicking it and bond is constantly counting the clicks going like oh has he armed it or disarmed the bomb and i'm sure this would be the same way with thor's hammer where they're like wait a second how many times has he has he tapped it you know we've got to keep the count going in our head how long the amount of time that can pass between two different taps so that it's countered as a double tap <laughs> or two single taps yes another generic alien monster villain is pretty lame, but it introduces the character, and this character will go on to have a long and illustrious history. Obviously, as you pointed out, I had not realized until just now, the Stone Men of Saturn, I assume they have retconned it to where they're not from Saturn, they apparently do come back decades later. It's a decent introduction, unmemorable generic villains. The power of the hammer seems really fiddly at first. But we got a good start. Ellie. No, I mean, this is a good comic. If I bought this comic, I would be like, hell yeah, I like Thor. I want to get the next <laughs> issue of Turdy in the Mystery. I would find the villains a little lame. I think that the art, you know, I love Sinod. I love those comics in the 50s where Sinod would do the penciling and the inking. 
And I think he does a great job of thinking. Now, unfortunately, we can read Fantastic Four number five and go like, oh, you know, this is such a tantalizing tease of when Sinat takes over inking the book later. Now, tragically, Sinat does not come back and take over Thor. So for Vince Guetta was inking both Fantastic Four and Thor and doing just an absolutely terrible job on both. And then they decide, oh, wait, this is ridiculous. We need to have Sinat taking over the inking of Fantastic Four and rescue that book from Coletta, and they just let Thor go. And so they keep Coletta on Thor for years and years and years, while Sinat is knocking it out of the park every month on Fantastic Four. And it is really tragic. There are six months in there where Bill Everett takes over the inking of Thor, and that's really gorgeous. And that is such a breath of fresh air when you're rereading these Thors, and you're so sick of Coletta. Finally, at the very end, there are some other anchors who take over. Here's the other weird thing about this, is that this physician with a limp is going on a vacation to Norway to take hikes in the <laughs> back countryside, up trails in the rocky coast. <laughs> like, you know, I guess you could say, oh, well, he was called there. He was destined to come here and he was answering some sort of summons of some sort that he was not but aware of. But that's not clear in this issue. That no, would later be made no, clear no, no, that no. he was he was summoned there by Odin, but yes. not at all clear in this issue. No, he's just, you know, I for one, Steve, think that the disabled <laughs> should be allowed to do things that normal <laughs> people do. And I I support him and he's like, I'm not going to let my disability hold me back. I'm going to go on a walking tour of Norway like you do. And I'm going to be there, uh, just happen to be there when aliens arrive from Saturn. And, you know, he's doing it in Norway where they've got socialized medicine. So, you know, that might, <laughs> Yeah. So if he might. hurts himself, it'll be fine. I think we're done with these three issues. I think we are. Well, I think <laughs> that the Marvel Universe is still going strong. We've had our first really sort of weak issue, but we've had a fantastic issue of Fantastic Four, a nice launch for Thor, and a rocky second issue for the Hulk. But even so, well worth reading. We've got Kirby, we've got Dicko, we've got the greatest artists of the 20th century, not counting all those people who are stuck in fuddy-duddy museums. And I think we're <laughs> off to a fantastic start. And I think this podcast is off to a fantastic start. Oh, I should go ahead and mention, doing reader mail here, on the one hand, people claim like, oh, Kirby created all these things solo because he had already done a Thor as superhero comic at DC a couple years before. And then, of course, the other thing people say is like, Kirby's main book at DC that he did in the 50s was The Challengers of the Unknown. Harvey Jerkwater, who has been a longtime commenter on my blog, says, I'm sure you'll bring it up later, but I got to mention it now. The Fantastic Four started off as a curious fusion of Marvel's monster comics and the work that Kirby had been doing at DC, The Challengers of the Unknown. The Challengers were a quartet of non-powered heroes consisting of a smart guy, a big guy, a young hothead, and a daring pilot. They wore matching jumpsuits, had a super science headquarters, and a crazy jet, and they got into adventures around the world investigating mysterious doings. Challengers comics were not particularly great, yet you get insights into what Stan brought to the series by comparing the teams. He then says, I looked up Steve Bird on the Great Comics Database, and dang, you worked on Hard Time, a great series that died way, way too soon. I so, gotta uh, say that hard, hard Time is one of my probably two or three proudest moments of comics work that I've done. It was written by the great and weird Steve Gerber, who yes. is most well-known in popular culture for creating Howard the Duck. Yes. And he he did all sorts of really trippy 70s weirdo stuff at Marvel. And he eventually ended up doing some work for DC towards the end of his life. And one of them was a book called Hard Time. It was a really, really great comic. And as I said, one of my proudest moments in my my relatively anonymous career. But let's go ahead and talk about what Harvey had to say. People say that Kirby invented Thor because there was a Thor comic and they're going like, and it proves that 
Kirby could have invented the Fantastic Four solo because they're so similar to a solo comic he had done called Challengers of the Unknown. I guess, did was there officially a writer attached to Challengers of the Unknown? There might have been, but no people idea. generally give Kirby credit for that comic. But I mean, I agree with you, Harvey, that you read the comic and it, it quickly becomes clear that Lee was contributing a lot to the Fantastic Four because the Challengers of the Unknown comics are not very good. And yes, clearly, I think that Challengers of the Unknown does make a strong case for Kirby as co-creator of the Fantastic Four, as someone who it's probably unlikely that Lee just completely came up with this book by himself and brought it to Kirby, because there is a lot of Kirby DNA, which is to say a lot of challenges of the unknown DNA in the Fantastic Four. This was in some ways a relaunch of that book as a superhero book. But it also becomes very clear when you read it that Lee brought a lot to the picture. Lee I would say, does deserve co-creator credit. I mean, the problem is that Kirby eventually claimed I created all these characters solo, but then he claimed I created Spider-Man solo. <laughs> Kirby, not we'll, Dicko. We'll, Kirby we'll, claims we'll, to we'll have solo that. created Spider-Man. It's one thing to, for people to go back now and go like, oh, well, Kirby claimed to have solo created the Fantastic Four, so therefore we have to give him solo credit for the Fantastic Four. But he also claims solo credit for Spider-Man, and nobody in their right mind gives him solo credit for Spider-Man. So you can't just take what Kirby said. You have to say, okay, Kirby went a little off the rail. Yeah, and I, my understanding is that's where Lee just kind of threw up his hands and was like, look, I, uh, you know, obviously Lee respected what Kirby did. I mean, you know, he he was his favorite artist to work on any of his books and he tried to bend over backwards to do stuff for him to the extent that he could um, in a management versus labor uh, relationship but at that point when he started claiming creatorship of spider-man that's where lee was like okay that's it i'm <laughs> you know, yeah. i'm out and we'll i'm sure get into that when we talk about the introduction of spider-man next week and the story behind where jack kirby's claim comes from okay let's get into that next week let's go ahead and wrap up this week so happy that people are out there listening to the first episode so mm-hmm. happy that we're getting some viewer mail please continue to send in viewer mail at secretsofstory.com and marvel reread club in the sidebar And we will see you next episode, everybody. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.